Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Lessons Learned from the War in Ukraine. Please welcome John J.V. Venable, the Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us for this event to uh, discuss what's happened in Ukraine and uh, how each side has done and, and maybe a little bit about what the United States can take away from it. We got a small crowd here, but no less handsome, strikingly handsome group. And we've got about 300 folks in the virtual office and want to welcome you all to the discussion. Over the course of uh, our uh, time together, we'll uh, basically walk through each of the domains. Uh, air, uh, we'll start with land, uh, then air, then sea. And uh, our, talk to our three experts that we've got with us. And I'll, uh, I'll pound them with a bunch of questions. And then from there, we'll take a, a, what uh, we can get from the audience through the virtual um, a question. If, if you look in your upper right-hand corner, you should see a little tab, a drop-down menu where you can actually type in questions. And, and we've got a, a, a great fella up here in the front, uh, Frederico Bartels, who's gonna catch those for us and feed them as they come. And so with that, why don't we get started? Uh, uh, the, uh, the war in Ukraine has surprised a lot of people from the get-go. Uh, from the 24th of February, when most experts were saying they would not invade, all the way through the mire that the Russians have gotten into. Most folks expected the Russians to be in Kyiv and in three to four days, but the defenses that uh, the Ukrainians have put up has been pretty impressive, um, as has been the uh, lack of, of, uh, of aggression, maybe, and success from the Russian side. And so we want to discuss all sides of this over the course of our 45 minutes or so together. And uh, to help us do that, we've got uh, three exceptional experts with us. Two are here with us on stage, and one is uh, virtual, and we'll talk about each here in just a minute. David Johnson, on my far left, um, spent 24 years in the United States Army uh, throughout the United States, Europe, and, uh, and Korea, artillery, um, infantry, and, uh, and several other aspects. He is an expert like few others. He was the vice president of SAIC, and, and now he is uh, here with us as an expert from the RAND Corporation. Um, to my immediate left is Rebecca Grant. Dr. Grant got her uh, PhD when I think she was 16. She's one of the smartest people I know, particularly in the domain of air power. And uh, she runs her own company here, Iris in the city, and is uh, basically tapped by the air staff on a regular basis uh, for her expertise. And then joining us virtually is that strikingly handsome man, uh, right next to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, uh, Brian Clark has also served in the United States military. He was a naval enlisted man for several years and then fleeted up, became a submarine officer and uh, worked his way to the chief engineer position and the ops officer uh, job at the Na Navy's nuclear power uh, training unit. And if those of y'all who are familiar with that, that means he's wicked, wicked smart. Um, after retiring, he went to work for uh, the uh, Chief of Naval Operations, um, ran his CAG, and basically um, looked after the, uh, the development of Navy strategy. 
Um, he worked for CSBA for several years and is now with Hudson, and he is an expert in naval operations, electronic warfare, and autonomous systems. And I'm going to pelt each of them um, individually, one by one, and if you will, we'll start with probably the, the most significant, at least from the outside world that we can see, the land domain. And I'm going to go over there and grab a hold of uh, Dave first. Um, Dave, everything that we can see pretty much, all of the things that we're hearing, um, by and large has to do with land warfare. Um, it's been a tough slog. Could you take a couple of minutes and summarize what you've seen over the last six months and maybe how it's changed? So I think what we've seen is with the Russian or coup type, they try to coup to maim against Kiev, which they'd already, they do this because there's an, a supposition that their force is so formidable when they pull into a smaller state, everybody throw their hands up and say, well, I quit. It worked in Czechoslovakia. It didn't work in Chechnya. It worked in Afghanistan where they took the entire country down in six weeks. Um, it didn't work in Hungary. And they revert to type, which is an artillery army with tanks. And they begin a slow grinding campaign because they, even though they're, they're going to what are called contractniks, which are contract soldiers, the vast majority of the soldiers are not what we would think of as a professional army. Uh, NCO Corps, they still have some remnants of the hazing. Uh, so, you know, they, they know what the instrument they have is. They're not confused that they don't have, you know, we went, they don't have NCOs. I think they already knew that. And you see how they operate as, a, as an understanding of what the instrument they're wielding is. So they become, they conquer with artillery, and then they occupy with infantry. And that's what we're seeing in the East, this gradual war of attrition that Putin's supposition is I will outlast them and I will break their will. And I'm also gonna work on the West because winter's coming. Uh, when fuel is gonna be short, uh, we're all here in rumblings in, in, in the NATO countries and food is extraordinarily short. Uh, if you go back to the Arab Spring, what, spurned the, what started the Arab Spring was a shortage of cooking oil and grain. And most of what comes in the Middle East and Africa comes out of Ukraine. So it's a real global problem now that there's going to be a lot of people saying, when are we going to get this over with? Um, I have no idea how it's going to end. Um, I think the only person that knows that is Putin, and he hasn't called me yet. And I think the, but the bigger issue is, it's very early to draw lessons learned from this conflict. Initially, um, I was reading how, you know, this is the world of javelin and switchblade, the tank is dead and all these other things. Well, not so much. Uh, when you talk to Ukrainians, they say, the biggest killer we have on the battlefield is still artillery. These small things slowed them down, as did the terrain, but what we're killing them with is artillery, and we need more, obviously. I catch it for you. Yeah, it does, Dave. It's a great uh, kickstart for the, the, the discussion. Uh, the United States is historically um, uh, very concerned with collateral damage and uh, civilian casualties. Urban warfare, as we learned in Iraq, very costly uh, for the offender going in and trying to clear the town. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the, the concern of the Russians. Um, they are rubbleizing cities, I think is the verb that people are using. Could you talk about that? Is this something new or is this basically Russian warfare? So I think um, 
what we have to understand is this is a different war than the war we've been fighting for 30 years, where our objective has been to avoid collateral damage and prevent casualties with civilians. Uh, well, one, the Russians don't really care about that. Um, in fact, they, they're using these weapons as terror weapons in some ways. But I would tell you that, you know, in this kind of war, if you go back to the last time we actually fought this kind of fight, uh, which is probably Korea uh, and World War II, you know, you use what's necessary to prevail against the adversary. And the assumption generally is, is that in these places, civilians are either gone or they're hiding. I mean, most of them are gone, quite frankly. Uh, the, you know, the migration out of these areas was unbelievable. I mean, there's places there's nobody left at. And so the assumption whether, I think the Russians would do it regardless, but in a combat zone like this against a state adversary, this is a gunfight. And the objective is, you know, collateral damage sometimes is actually a good thing. I got the rocket, I got the radar, and I got the crew. Uh, we've been focused on getting the radar. Um, and that's not the kind of fight this is. Yeah, this is uh, staggering uh, with regard to the amount of casualties they're inflicting on the Ukrainians, but they have taken a lot of casualties themselves. Do they really not care about their people? So you know, I'm, every day I read about the casualties, it's, it's, it ranges widely. I think one of the things we have to understand, and I applaud them for it, uh, the Ukrainians are managing the message in this war. Um, you know, the Russians don't tell you anything other than what they want you to know. Well, Ukrainians are doing the same thing, quite frankly, and they're very effective at it. And they're the good guys. Uh, that's what it boils down to in the press. And they really are. But that aura of help us, we're doing the right thing, keeps us from really being able to ask, well, what about how many casualties you had? Was the combat affecting the Soviet units? And those are state secrets, and they ought to be. I don't, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying they're very good at it, and they're very good at operational security. So the point I'm making, we really don't know the status of the Ukrainian military forces. And you know, again, kudos for them, because I wouldn't want anybody to know either. But you have to be very sanguine about any information you're getting out about number of vehicles destroyed, uh, Russian casualties. I mean, the difference between the, our estimate and the Ukraine estimate at one point was like 15,000 dead. So, you know, they want that story to be that way. Um, and quite frankly, I, you know, everybody cares about their people, but they care about their country more than they care about, I mean, when you listen to interviews with, you know, regular Ukrainian soldiers or other foreign soldiers who are going to fight there, they're fighting for a cause. Uh, the Russians are fighting, in my view, what they've always fought for, which is Mother Russia. And we just do not understand the depth of that in Russian culture. Um, Putin's popularity is still high. Uh, I read a book for a book discussion group, my wife's at the Cosmos Club, called Haji Marat um, by Tolstoy. It's about Chechen rebels in the 18, uh, 18th, 19th century. Same exact kind of war. They're going into towns, burning them to the ground, you know, scorched earth, killing prisoners to take control of the revolution. So this is not different. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. And this, you know, this same conscript army led by incompetent NCOs by corrupt officers defeated Nazi Germany. 
So I would not write them off. No, certainly not. So a great description of what's going on the ground. Let's turn to the air domain just for a second. Now, if you were to look and do an analysis of the world, probably the second best air force in the world is the Russians with regard to bombers and fighters. And their technology, at least from the outside, is pretty leading edge. And yet they haven't done much with it, at least from the outside. Um, Rebecca, could you talk a little bit about how the Russians have used air power and why it hasn't materialized into something more significant <laughs> with regard to the, the movement of, of their forces? Well, there are really two sides to this story, but we have to start with the fact that Russia has not gained air superiority over Ukraine. We used to hear on a daily basis, really, from the Pentagon briefers how proud they were of that fact. I'd say it sort of has two meanings, though. One, that means that they haven't stretched that air superiority course across Ukraine, but most of the fighting now is in the east and in the south. It also means they don't really have complete air superiority in the Black Sea. But we should make no mistake, because Russia nonetheless seems to be able to use their air power, often rather ineptly, but to achieve the limited objectives that they have set for it. It's a complement now, as Dave said, to the artillery and the tank battles. They are still able to launch terror bombing, although if you look at the total numbers of air and missile strikes, they are probably around 3,000. Um, and if you look at, by the standards of even Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, that's actually not a big number in terms of ordnance and strikes. Nonetheless, they're devastating <coughs> and effective because they simply don't care what they hit. The theater in Mariupol, no problem. Uh, the other thing that Russia has done, though, uh, is to provide a type of air lockout around that area. And I hate to say it, but they've been very effective in chasing away any thought of a NATO no-fly zone prior to or in the early days of the conflict. They've also pretty effectively prevented any Western use of air power other than the systems that we have directly given to them. That said, Russia's performance in the air has been terrible. Turns out, really, they were just sort of a continental air force. They don't like to fly at night. They don't like to fly very far into Ukraine. Pictures suggest to me and to you that sometimes they get caught evading a SAM and pickle off ordnance in order to escape. And we also know that frequently they will take off over their own airfield, get to altitude, launch a cruise missile on a target in Ukraine, go back and land. Not an impressive performance in any way. But I agree with my colleague here who says it's very early to draw lessons. There are a lot to be drawn. We'll probably talk about a few. But I think one question we have to start asking ourselves is how did we happen to overestimate the abilities of the Russian Air Force and most of all their abilities to work in what we call a combined arms or joint campaign? Yeah, to the average American, that joint campaign, combined arms, integrating air systems with the movement of uh, the armor units on the ground, seems like it would be relatively easy, at least to the average American. Is it really that easy? Of course not. It's just that we practice and do it well. But the Russians' inability to integrate is why they were not able to carry out maneuver warfare in their drive on Kyiv. To me, a very significant moment was when Ukraine took back the Hostomel airfield near Kyiv. Russia had attempted an ambitious air assault in those early days as part of taking down Ukraine in one stroke, and it failed. 
for two reasons. One, they simply did not bring near enough forces to hold the airfield, and then they had no ability to resupply or reinforce. And thank heavens, so the Ukrainians chased them off the airfield. That meant no ability to fly in additional forces and execute operations around Kyiv, and they got chased back, which was terrific. Because they did not have that air superiority over their maneuver columns, which you know, would have been basic to uh, Patton uh, in World War II, right? The Ukrainians were able to use their shorter range systems against those forces and had the happy outcome of chasing them away from Kiev. But it has been a surprise the lack of a level of integration. Russians boasted that they were learning a lot from flying down in Syria out of Latakia. Looks to me like they didn't learn much nor did the vaunted Gerasimov doctrinal reforms extend in any way to the Air Force. Yeah, for a fighter pilot, uh, if you look at the systems that are in play here, the S-300 that the Ukrainians have is a significantly capable system. Um, as the S-400, its follow-on is the ones that the Russians have. Uh, it has surprised me, and I'm not sure it has you, uh, the lack of at least reported um, suppression of enemy air defenses, seed that the Russians have not launched on the Ukrainians. Um, their anti-radiation missiles were things that we talked about for years, both air-to-air, -air, being able to, to home in on radars that uh, our fighters had, and with their ability to hit, um, hit surface-to-air missile systems. Could you talk a little bit about why that might be? couple of reasons. One, during and after Vietnam, American pilots, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, became experts in suppression of enemy air defenses. It was the core doctrine that saw us through Desert Storm and many other types of operations and plans for the Cold War. Evidently, the Russians either didn't integrate that, practice it enough, somehow that broke down and didn't occur in Russia. Second and very important part, Although they've only dropped a few hints, our military leadership, both from General Walters in Europe and the Joint Staff here, have made it pretty clear that we have significantly assisted Ukraine with some key intelligence and, most of all, uh, the ability to keep control of the cyber domain. That's been the answer in allowing Ukraine's air defenses to maintain their systems. And then Ukraine, like most other nations in the world, but not like the U.S., integrates air defense with the rest of their air forces, uh, unlike us where we split that still between the Army and the Air Force and Navy. So they do have a good integrated system. Remember, our Fresno Air National Guard in California began training missions with Ukraine's Air Force uh, back in 2017. I think they passed some of those lessons along. It's been very successful, and I think a, a real, we'll hear about the details probably 10 or 15 years from now, but a real um, a high point for U.S. and allied assistance to Ukraine and for Ukrainian operations. Well, fabulous. So let's turn to our uh, cyber guest. Um, Brian, if you could come up, uh, bring yourself up on screen. The Russian uh, Navy has actually increased its operations in the Black Sea as of late. Um, and it, there have been several rather largely reported incidents uh, that have uh, involved them. Could you talk a little bit about how they have, uh, the Navy, the Russian Navy, has been involved from the beginning and how that's morphed over the, the time, the last six months. Uh, yeah, JV, and thanks for inviting me to uh, participate. Um, the Russian Navy has uh, you know, suffered some of the, the most catastrophic, most visible losses uh, of the war, uh, and it's created a lot of news coverage. Uh, and I can talk a little bit about that. And so, but the, I'd say, first of all, 
Um, the, the biggest challenge that we're facing today worldwide is the food shortages that are resulting from the Russian blockade of Odessa. And so the, in a lot of ways, the naval fight is the one that's the most consequential for the rest of the world. Although, as David mentions, uh, you know, the fight on the ground is clearly the most consequential for the Ukrainians themselves. Um, so if you could bring up that first slide, I think what's interesting to note is early on in the war, uh, what uh, I guess, there you go. So what early on in the war, um, the uh, Western powers, the US, NATO allies, all retreated from the Black Sea in the lead up to the conflict. And so Russia largely had the Black Sea to itself. It essentially became uh, a Russian lake, except for the coastal areas around Turkey and maybe Bulgaria and Romania. But it largely had control of the Sea of Azov all the way down to the Bosporus. Um, and the, the Black Sea fleet that they used to control that, that you see on the slide here, um, is uh, you know a couple dozen ships. Uh, it's a pretty sizable force, um, considering the size of the the uh, the, uh, the water uh, mass there. But um, the Ukrainians didn't have much of a navy to combat the Russians. Uh, the NATO allies largely had withdrawn, except for the coasts uh, around uh, the Black Sea, uh, leaving Russia to essentially control the Black Sea uh, for itself, um, which they've used to then create this blockade. Um, despite that, though, they have suffered some very, ca very catastrophic losses that we've all seen in the news. So the Moskva, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet that you see there, uh, was lost to a missile attack, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then they've lost some uh, amphibious ships that were positioned a little bit too close to shore. Um, and those were all lost to uh, precision weapons uh, wielded by the Ukrainians that were able to pa you know, patch together a battle network using assistance from the West that was able to go and, and attack these ships uh, at long range um, and create some devastating consequences and some good headlines for themselves. Um, the uh, A couple of things to note here is that so you see on the on the right hand side of that slide, the, the Bosporus Strait um, is still being uh, controlled by Turkey under the Montreux Convention, which has not allowed any ships to um, go into the Black Sea to uh, any military ships that are not based there to enter the Black Sea, which means Russia can't replace these ships or reinforce them, the ones that are lost or add to them. Uh, and also uh, the West has chosen not to and also you know, technically cannot uh, deploy any ships in there to help Ukraine out in terms of breaking the blockade. Um, and you can see on the lower right-hand side there, those are the ships of uh, that, are, that the U.S. Navy has in Rota that all returned home uh, to Rota, Spain, uh, at the uh, early stages of the conflict to avoid there being a confrontation with the Russians. Um, and so you can you can take that slide down. But the um, but the upshot of that is um, that the Russians have been able to largely control the Black Sea despite some significant losses. Um, actually, if you can go to that next slide, I will talk a little bit about that. So the Russian losses um, that they suffered in the Black Sea, um, you know, the Moskva and also these amphibious ships were the result of the Ukrainians taking advantage of some precision weapons that they had uh, themselves. So the Neptune cruise missile that you see down there on the lower right hand side is a indigenous uh, cruise missile that was built by the Ukrainians using old Russian technology and some newer microelectronics. So that's a domestic cruise missile and a ship missile that they made that they were able to employ to sink the Moskva. Um, now the Moskva obviously had issues with regard to its air defense capabilities uh, and its readiness, um, but still it's a significant you know, lesson here that really it just takes one missile to get through to hit a modern warship for it to be at least out of action and potentially out you know, completely as a result of the fires and other damage that might result. Um, the other thing that was interesting about the, those attacks was how they were able to leverage uh, intelligence from the West, you know, satellite imagery that was being provided by a variety, more almost a dozen Western uh, satellite imagery com companies were providing intelligence information to the Ukrainians, which gives them a rough idea of where the ships are. 
that they were able to then engage using um, uh, these uh, anti ship cruise missiles and unmanned air vehicles uh, like the Bayraktar uh, 2v2 that they used to confuse Russian air defenses as well as provide some targeting that helped direct the final cruise missile attacks. So the, the, the Ukrainians have been doing a great job, and you can take the slide down now, um, of uh, assembling battle networks that allow them to conduct these long-range precision attacks um, that have left the Russians um, on the defensive and keeping their fleet largely out to sea to avoid further losses. Um, but that doesn't change the fact uh, that the Russians still control the Black Sea, still control uh, the ability for Ukraine to get any exports out or bring any imports in via the Bosphorus or the Black Sea. Now, Brian, is that their biggest impact? So the Navy is obviously, the Russian Navy has taken some big losses. Is their biggest impact the embargo they're putting on the grain or actually have they inflicted damage on the Ukrainian uh, forces? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the uh, Russian Navy has launched cruise missile attacks on Ukraine. Um, in part, that is to just show that they're ready to do that. I think that was a demonstration on the Russians' part to show that their ships actually had weapons that they could use. It's also because um, the Russians were starting to run out of weapons. So their, their precision weapons inventory uh, was running low, and they've, they've launched attacks from uh, the frigates that are in the Black Sea, as well as the Kilo submarines that are in the Black Sea, uh, in part because they needed those precision weapons to you know, augment what was available from air launch systems that were based in Russia. Oh, uh, great. So Snake Island is uh, seems like it's always in the news one way or another. What's the strategic significance of Snake Island, if there is one? Yeah, so that's a, a that just like the attacks on the ships, um, they have more of a, a public relations value than an actual military value. So you know, the loss of the Moskva, the loss of those couple of amphibious ships, really didn't change anything in terms of the balance of power at sea. You know, the Russians still have control of the Black Sea; they can still prevent any Russian export, rather any Ukrainian exports. Um, that the Russians don't allow. Um, and and so similar to that Snake Island, if you actually if you pull up that last slide, to do have a map. Um, the last slide on that deck, uh, we can see that the map that kind of shows where, where the situation is on the water. But Snake Island is about 60 miles offshore. Uh, go one more slide. Oh, okay. Well, regardless, <laughs> the um, so the the so Snake Island is about 60 miles offshore, but it's about a 350 to 400 mile transit from Odessa all the way to the Bosporus Strait. So Snake Island allows um, the Ukrainians to better control the uh, entrances uh, to the the port of Odessa and the Gulf that Odessa sits in, um, which prevents the the Russians from maybe getting in there, maybe because uh, the Russia the Ukrainians can attack them at sea. But it doesn't really help Ukraine in its biggest problem, which is trying to uh, protect its uh, its exports, trying to get out of the Bosphorus. Uh, so there's about 200 miles of transit lane that is not currently covered by any um, Ukrainian weapon system or ship um, that allows the Russians to control access in and out of uh, the port of Odessa. So Snake Island, although it's a it's a it's a good you know victory in terms of the uh, the media battle, the narrative battle, uh, it doesn't necessarily change that fundamental fact that Ukraine is still cut off from the rest of the world at sea. Uh, you talked about the strait that the um, uh, the Turks control and that uh, they are basically they've got it locked up. Do you think the Russians will actually try to reinforce? Uh, their Black Sea fleet uh, over the, the next several months? Oh, they would try. Well, they've tried to, and they've been uh, rebuked uh, by the Turks. And so what one thing that the Russians are looking to try to do is come up with some kind of grand bargain here, where if they were to allow uh, exports of grain to come out of uh, Ukraine, can they get the Turks to agree to allow Russia to uh, reinforce or at least replace ships in the Black Sea fleet that have been lost 
um, or that need to be removed due to the, the need for repairs. So Russia is trying to work this out as part of its uh, negotiations with uh, NATO uh, and with Turkey in particular. Um, and of course, if Turkey allows that, um, then the question will be, if Turkey is going to allow access by warships into the Black Sea, uh, will they allow access from uh, Western NATO allies as well that are not based in the Black Sea? So under the Montreux Convention, uh, you, uh, Turkey could still keep them out. Um, but the question is, would they allow those ships to enter to try to escort uh, grain exports? Great question. Great thought. So let's turn to the Ukrainian order of battle, if we can, just for a, a couple of minutes. We've got about 15 minutes uh, left. so. It'll be kind of a quick round. Um, Dave, we, we, we've watched the, uh, the Ukrainians change over the last several years. If you go back to 2014, um, Russians or Russian rebels, if you will, uh, did a big land grab in the Donbass region that went kind of uh, almost overnight. What changed? Uh, what's changed over the last eight years? So I think what fundamentally changed, and one, there's been a lot of governmental reforms in Ukraine, but the military was fundamentally reformed. Uh, they got rid of a bunch of the old, basically Soviet generals that were running the system. And we make a lot out of this about NATO training. I don't think it's as much as we are making it out to be, but it made a significant difference. Um, that is a professionalized army that's getting trained. Um, and it's a merit-based system. A lot of the, the really bad things that were there from the Soviet days have been ameliorated. So I think they also were woken up by the fact what happened in, when the Russians came in. And they also got combat experience from fighting that for the last number of years. So this is an army that you know, has been rotating its active forces in and out of that area for a number of years. It's gotten very experienced, has decent leadership, and they're just much better than they were. And they're aware that there's a problem. I, I think they were taken off guard by Crimea and you and Donbass like everybody else was. Yeah. The United States has provided a lot of things to Ukraine. Um, I think all three of you have touched on the intel and the cyber aspects of it. Um, we've HIMARS, um, uh, the anti-tank systems and the likes. What's been most effective and what's been least effective? So I think um, recently what we've been seeing and hearing is HIMARS. Um, one, it's the triple seven howitzer is not particularly mobile. It takes you know, eight to 10 minutes to set up and fire and move. Uh, and it has no armor at all. So it, for, once it fires, if it's acquired, you've got a lot of time to find it. If you find it, you'll kill it. HIMARS shoots and just drives down the road. Um, it displaces really quickly. Uh, it's not very, you know, particularly great cross country but they're not using it cross country, they're using these mesh of farm roads and, you know, and tracks. So I think HIMARS is really the thing that's making the most difference right now. The Germans are gonna, I just read today, are gonna provide 100 SPH 2000s, which is a, a magnificent howitzer. And it's an armored system that has a high rate of fire that could really contribute as well. But what they need is to, to win the artillery fight, because that's what's enabling the Russians to dominate where they are dominating because they just have the weight of metal on their side right now. Yeah, Dave, this uh, war of attrition seems to have kicked in now. And Zelensky, as much uh, control as he's had over the media and casualty rates, he himself has said they are uh, suffering between 150 and 200 KIA a day. Right. 
and up to 500 uh, wounded in action a day. And the numbers are likely higher than that. How long can Ukraine sustain this kind of fight? So the first thing I do is caveat when he said that. It was about the same time he's really begging for HIMARS. Um, and it was a time that was really intense in one fight. I don't think that's continued at that rate over time. But even if it hasn't, um, you know, as a military historian, you have to say something about Clausewitz at some point. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he, what he said was fundamentally, nobody reads this part. You know, we all read the things we want to read. Um, but he said, in a war of exhaustion, don't become exhausted first. And that is the challenge for both sides right now. How long can you stay in the fight? Uh, it's a real lesson for us. We'll talk about lessons later. But, you know, the enormity of the munitions and people and supplies that they're both going through every single day, it's just unimaginable for us that in a military that we've built that thinks about short, sharp wars, you know, everybody's saying this is a long war. It's... It took the Germans in World War II with three million something people three months just to get to Kiev. So this is not a, you know, a long war yet. And long wars, you know, ironically with smaller forces become more protracted because you don't have mass for decisiveness, particularly when you don't control the air. Fantastic. So uh, turn to the air side. Um, the Ukrainian Air Force, before the war started, had uh, SU-27s, MiG-29s, and, and their basic A-10 variant, which is the Frogfoot. Um, but the, the rhetoric that we've heard has been <coughs> muted coming out. Uh, reportedly, a good day for a, um, a Ukrainian fighter pilot is to take off, go out and do a recce sortie of some sort, and then come back without being shot down. Could you talk about the effectiveness of the Ukraine Air Force and what they may need in order to, to boost their efforts? Yes, and they've been tremendously effective. But as you know, it's about sustaining it. And one of those pilots apparently was shot down on July 26th, Major Kukurba, age 28, 100th mission. And that's exactly the type of uh, experienced combat aviator that you don't want to lose. And so the question for Ukraine is, how are, is there any pilot training going on? Is anybody getting checked out on the systems? What's the pipeline to sustain that? Some of the good news, I think, has occurred with drones, which have enabled a level of battlefield surveillance and of precision targeting assistance. There are a lot of ways it's done, but helping out systems like HIMARS. <laughs> So in a case where we've decided Ukraine doesn't get enough much strike air power, the drones have been of tremendous assistance both in their own targeting and in their providing of that battle space picture. Just been very, very effective there. Um, I, I think for Ukraine, though, again, we don't have a totally clear picture of their losses and their situation. We know they're fighting very hard, but I am hoping someone is sitting there helping them assess how to keep this going for the next three months and the next three months after that if required. Of course, we know the great tragedy every week is the, the, the aircraft we're not giving them, not the MiG-29s, not the Predator from Pete's sake, the Gray Eagles, not you know this variant of helicopter and you know now not F-16s or F-15s, although the House would like to authorize something like that. Not so many times we tell the Air Force no. Yeah, many people talk about these, uh, the fighter gifts and the MiG-29, they're flying the MiG-29, might be an easy transition, but that's not what the Ukrainians want. If we were to give them uh, F-16s, 
what would be the long pole in the tent with regard to training? Is it the pilots, maintainers, logistics? Could you talk a bit about that? It looks to me like the long pole in the tent is a little bit of all that, but it's not such a terribly long pole. If we were to uh, give them F-16s, I think we, that would have to come along with the stateside training and the maintenance training to make them able to sustain that. Frankly, whether it's F-16s, uh, which would be better for them, or the, the old MiG-29s, whatever it would be, the long pole in the tent for us on air is really policy. A fear of escalation is preventing any um, executive level serious discussion of this, although it seems to me that Congress, if you, have, if you ask the American people would they vote to send airplanes for Ukraine, I think they would all vote yes very quickly. No, no fabulous. So Brian, let me turn to you. Uh, the, Ukraine doesn't have much in the way of a Navy, and at least we haven't heard much of it, but they have some significant counter naval systems. Could you talk about their effectiveness? And, uh, and how they're able to keep maybe the Russian Navy at bay? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So Ukraine's Navy uh, was pretty small. Uh, it consisted of a few uh, corvettes, you know, smaller uh, inland or rather coastal defense ships, uh, and then some patrol craft. So not a very big force. Um, and a lot of that was uh, eliminated very quickly in the war uh, by Russian forces. So uh, Ukraine really hasn't been able to do very much at sea. But what they have been able to do, as you said, is uh, leverage their uh, anti-ship weapons that are launched from shore to be able to hold off the Russian Navy. So I, I talked earlier about the Moscow being sunk by a couple of uh, domestic Neptune uh, anti-ship missiles, um, which the Ukrainians built uh, themselves. They had a relatively small number of them, but they can always build more. Um, they recently were provided uh, Harpoon uh, anti-ship missiles uh, from Denmark that were uh, a ground launch version that uh, the U.S. doesn't have yet, but is is building some now. Um, those have been actually used a couple of times uh, against uh, some uh, resupply uh, efforts to Snake Island prior to Snake Island falling back to Ukrainian hands. So they attacked the salvage ship that was being used to, to resupply Snake Island with Harpoon cruise missiles. Um, and they've also taken advantage of uh, the Bakhtar's uh, ability to you go out and do uh, surveillance and targeting as well as confuse air defense systems on Russian ships uh, to be able to help guide some of their missile attacks. And the last one I th say is that the, um, the uh, amphibious ships that were um, in port that were attacked early in the war uh, were attacked by, uh, it looks like a combination of rockets and ballistic missiles, so relatively uh, unsophisticated um, Grad cruise missiles that, um, or rather ballistic missiles that were left over from the Soviet era uh, in part, um, were used to attack those ships. So the, the Ukrainians have really done a great job of taking advantage of the small number of anti-ship weapons they had, um, leveraging uh, commercial surveillance uh, from satellite uh, imagery companies to give them a rough idea of where ships are, and then using their UAVs to uh, get that final tactical uh, targeting that allows them to put the missile on the, on the actual ship and, and take it out. Um, they've also been able to take advantage of um, communication networks like Starlink to be able to pass that targeted information from a you know, terminal that's getting the download of the, the satellite information from the commercial companies and providing that to the missile launcher, which is somewhere else. Um, so, that, so the Starlink system has been a, a real benefit to them in terms of doing the command and control necessary for these missile attacks. Is the imagery link, so the time you request imagery to come down from a commercial um, provider, uh, to be able to find and fix a, a Russian um, surface vessel, is it timely enough where their systems can actually go in and inquire it, or would they need more timely U.S. intel to make that happen? 
Uh, so in a lot of cases, the commercial Intel is going to be satisfactory. So the latency on it you know, varies, obviously, but um, a lot of those systems can give you latency of less than half an hour, um, especially these Russian ships are not moving around very much, if at all. Uh, in some cases, they're um, just sort of loitering either at anchor or just you know, in, a, in a fixed spot out in the Black Sea, trying to stay uh, hidden and off the coast far enough to avoid attack. Um, so the fact that they're not moving very fast or very far means you can use that satellite imagery and then you know launch on that and hope that the missile is able to do the rest of the job with its seeker, you know, like the harpoon can. Um, or you're going to use the uh, a Bayaktar or some you know uh, UAV to be able to get that final targeting information. You need to know where to send the UAV though. So the the commercial imagery gives you enough of an idea of where to go that you can send the UAV to get the final targeting and then launch the attack uh, as soon as you obtain that. Fabulous. Well, let's turn to lessons learned out of this conflict for the United States and what we can take away from it. You know, for the last uh, 25, 30 years, we've actually um, used our joint weapon systems and our air, land and sea domains quite effectively, as well as cyber to go in and prosecute um, low threat uh, environments and, and unsophisticated enemies. But now we're looking at a very sophisticated set of enemies. Even what used to be known as the third world nation, Ukraine, has done some exceptional things in this war. So how have things? How has this war changed the way we look at uh, at conflict? And I'll talk with each of the domain experts. And Dave, why don't you start us off? Yeah. So I wrote an article a few weeks ago about you know what can we learn about ourselves from this war? Um, because I think we're saying the Russians just don't have it together because they got crummy people and they're not well trained. And and I think part of this is relevant combat experience and relevant uh, operational experience with large units. The last time we put multiple cores in the field uh, was Desert Storm, uh, where we thought we were going to fight a competent enemy and they only contested us really in the land domain. Uh, the air domain was taken care of really quickly. So the ability, when you look at what the Russians attempted initially, four axes that are separated in some cases by 400 kilometers, you know, it's a difficult problem to command and control and support logistically forces like that across that expanse. So I think there's a lot we can learn about what does it really take to operate large forces in the field, particularly when you're contested in all the domains. Uh, absent of what Rebecca said, you know, we have not, the Army has not operated without air cover since 1918. The last time an American soldier was killed by an airplane, April 1953, by essentially a hand grenade out of a biplane that a North Koreans used to fly. And so we've become used to operating with, out looking over our shoulder for red air. Uh, we've become used to tightly integrated air ground operations. I don't know how effective the air defense systems are. You know, is it because they're bad pilots that they're not flying or because the air defense threat is significant enough to make people be really wary? I think it's probably a combination of both, but we have not flown against air defenses since Desert Storm. Um, OAF, we've taken care of in Northern Watch and Southern Watch essentially. So I think that coupled with the idea that these are short, decisive wars with low casualties isn't true in this kind of war. Uh, these are back to days of Korea and World War II. Um, the discussion we had about collateral damage, yeah, I wrote an article talking about what the Russians, their accuracy for them is I hit the city. 
I hit Mario Pole. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, I talked to my dad when, you know, he's a paratrooper in World War II. So they pull up to a German village. If they got fire from the village, then there's a white flag. They pull out and level it with artillery and go to the next village. Every veteran I talk to at the end of the war says essentially the same thing. You know, if they want to fight, we're going to fight with what we fight with. So this is what real war looks like, and we haven't seen it in so long we've forgotten it. Um, and it's particularly true in Europe where they've not been involved in anything in 70 years, essentially, but peacekeeping operations. So things like casualty evacuation, you know, how are we going to feel about in the United States having a thousand casualties in two days? You know, I just, I, that is going to be a shock to the system we need to prepare ourselves for. We need to prepare a medical system for that. The industrial base, um, we are buying weapons like Excalibur's 155 round that costs $170,000 a round. A regular 155 round, five round costs 300 to $1,000 per round. You can buy a lot of dumb bullets and they're just as accurate after the first round. And what you need in these kind of fights are area effects and mass effects against large formations. And that's just something we haven't thought about in so long. And most of our inventories are precision weapons and the opportunity costs everything else. So taking a look at, you know, how would we have done if we were the Russians trying to do this? The flip side, and I think it's more important, quite frankly, in NATO and in Pacific, is we're not there to win an offensive fight, we're there to deter. So what does it take to stop this kind of adversary and make him be convinced he's not gonna be successful? In other words, a strategy of denial and what does it take to have on the ground to do that and in the air? And if he does do something, how do you stop him and how do you compel him to leave at the operational level so you don't escalate? Because I don't think the escal it's not an escalatory ladder, it's an escalator once you get on it. I mean, you're gonna go to the top with the Russians if you start using nukes. So the question to me is how do you keep this at the operational level and prevent aggression and if it happens, it's more like desert storm. He doesn't get to invade Saudi Arabia and I kick him out of Kuwait. So those are the kinds of things I think we need to be thinking about. And we're not really quite frankly thinking much about those. Uh, we're an expeditionary army based in CONUS. A great summary, Dave. So the air side of this is uh, also interesting to think about. Uh, if you go and ask Putin um, the day before the war, if he thought his military was ready to go, I think he was told his, his military was ready to go and would be in Kiev in, in two to three days. You have to wonder how much that truth um, hurt um, that, that process and his decision-making process. But the same thing is true with other militaries. And so, Rebecca, could you talk a little bit about how we're prepared today to go to war and what the training levels are and the intensity with regard to the U.S. Air Forces. Right, and preliminary lessons. And as we know, our pilots aren't flying as much as they should, and our inventories are not modernized to the level that they should be. I'll run through a couple of quick lessons that really apply to us as much as anyone. We do not fight without air power. Not gonna do that. It is brutal, ugly, and unnecessary. Second, cyber has to be solid in place from day one. I'd say the third lesson we see is that drones of many types are now really fully integrated across the find, fix, and target kill chain. And there will be questions about how that looks when you've got a big 
air campaign at the same time, but drones are here to stay and we need to counter drone operations. We have some very um, harsh lessons for US policy. The no-fly zone policy option, which we've used successfully over the decades, failed, didn't happen. We, um, we can see that unless you have air superiority, you can't do things like aerial resupply into Mariupol, which was done by helicopter for a while. Back to the good side, we see that NATO wants air deterrence. Three more countries just went out and bought the F-35. And part of the reason behind that is because of extended nuclear deterrence. We had a curtain of air power along the NATO border when the Ukraine war kicked off. NATO is going to want very strong, very first-rate air power for generations to come after Ukraine wins this war. Great. So, Brian, turn to you. Uh, Neptune's been awfully effective against the, uh, the, the Russians. Talk to us about uh, how the United States will, will see the next war and the great power competition and, and how the lessons out of this one will apply to it. Yeah, so uh, clearly one uh, lesson out of this is that precision weapons uh, are a big problem for ships uh, and that even if you've got air defenses, it uh, just takes one of those weapons to get through to uh, take your ship out of action, you know, because basically it's all hands to do damage control instead of fighting the ship. Uh, and then also you could lose the ship very easily. So um, air defense has risen again in uh, importance for the U.S. Navy. There's been a lot of discussion about directed energy, lasers being used for air defense to a greater degree. I think one thing it's going to do is really refocus um, uh, navalists on uh, short-range defenses that have high capacity, uh, because I think one of the issues that the Navy currently has, our Navy and other navies, is that we tend to try to shoot uh, incoming threats as far away as possible. Uh, which means you're using the biggest, most expensive surface-to-air missiles you have to try to take out those first uh, tranche of incoming cruise missiles. Uh, and you need to start thinking about, um, I need you know smaller weapons that I can carry more of because I might have to deal with more than just a couple of missiles. I might have to deal with dozens of missiles over a protracted conflict. I need that capacity. So there's definitely a, a move afoot to try to reconsider how we do air defense for ships. Uh, and maybe move away from the large area air defense and move more towards the shorter range defenses that might have a higher capacity. Uh, and then I'd say the other thing is that um, electronic warfare, which has uh, been a longstanding way of doing air defense for the U.S. Navy and other navies, uh, is uh, getting reinvigorated because I think there's recognition that uh, it's a you know deeper magazine, if you will, than, than what you get with a surface-to-air missile. Um, and EW is now starting to make its uh, presence known in the Ukraine conflict uh, on the ground. Uh, I think we're going to you know, probably see a little bit more of it at sea as, as the conflict progresses. Great. Uh, wonderful, wonderful summation. Uh, back to the basics seems to be uh, something that's floating in the back of my mind. Uh, it was the Bonhomme Richard that, uh, that burned and has basically been toasted. And it, basic firefighting skills, things that we, uh, survival to operate things in all of the domains, seem to need to be revised. And it'll be interesting to see how all of the services come forward with that. If we go over one hour, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to end up paying for this uh, line out of pocket. So I'm going to try to get a couple of, of questions, uh, one from online and one from the audience here in just a second. So if you would bring the microphone forward, or you can just tell me what it is, and I'll, I'll uh, repeat it, Fred. The willingness of the United States and the West to provide more stuff from you, for Ukraine. What is holding us back from providing more? What, what uh, impetus would make a difference? 
and uh, I'll, I'll throw it out to the three of you. I'll jump in first, if that's okay. Um, I, I think we see a case where we thought R uh, Russia would win fast. Therefore, we've been in catch-up mode on the branches and sequels. What does that picture of victory look like? That's made it hard to select the correct systems. We have also let ourselves be very self-deterred. And you know, I think we see it, honestly, from the White House does not want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Russia. That has had an incredible policy impact. And then I think there are some smaller issues here. Let me go back to the gray eagles, which are supposed to be provided, just four of them. But remember, those gray eagles each belong to a specific army unit. No commander is going to want to give them up. You know, I, we, we have seen the joint staff, I think, step into the breach and try to scramble equipment and systems to Ukraine. But we need that guiding uh, Casablanca, the plan for victory, however long or short it will be, in order to supply more. And Russia cannot win this war. We have got to come up with this. We've got to stop doing things like letting Russia's Air Force have that sanctuary is like the Yalu River. So the greatest holdup on what to give is the operational concept and the political will to implement it. Brian, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think you know one uh, thing that I think Dave, uh, Dave and, uh, and uh, uh, Rebecca both brought up is that giving more is is a problem because we don't have more to give. You know, the West is now running low on its own stocks of precision weapons and some of these uh, sensors and launcher systems. So that's a problem. Uh, and then the other question is, like Rebecca brings up, is different. You know, so we we can't give more, but we could give give different. We could give the Ukrainians um, capabilities that allow them to have a longer reach, like uh, UAVs. Um, like longer range missiles that could go in the high Mars um, that would allow them to actually start taking the fight back to the Russians and taking out some of the targets that are uh, supporting the Russian offensive, even if they are targets that are inside Russia. I think that's the decision now is do we start to give them different because we can't give them any more of what they were already getting. Great point, Dave. Yeah, so I wrote some a few weeks ago to go back to what Brian said, that are we the arsenal of democracy or not? And my sense is there's countries that are pushing back because they're running short on what they have. Well, that's fine. I mean, what we bought them for is what they're doing with them. They're killing Russians. Okay, so give them whatever we got and build more. The question isn't, you know, we have low arsenals. The question is we need to build bigger arsenals. And our industry moves afoot to do that. Uh, but I think the way you decide what they need is to look at what's going to hurt the Russians the most. And what I've seen so far with the HIMARS that's really been valuable is not you know, doing the flanking Russian artillery systems, but going after ammo depots, command and control. Uh, one of the big lessons that everybody in this room needs to learn if you're on a battlefield is do not have your cell phone with you. Um, this is how they're finding folks. This is how they found people in Lebanon 2006. We all think for some reason nobody can listen to you on your cell phone. Uh, ask the German or the Russian generals who are, you know, laying feet up right now how that went. But headquarters that are big that admit um, it takes a long time to move these large, soft targets now that we got used to in Afghanistan and Iraq because nobody was shooting at them. Um, they're just emitting so much energy, they're just a, a magnet for artillery. But I would say what they need is what we can sustain. Uh, because right now we're, you know, Germans give them howitzers, we're giving them howitzers, the French, they're all different. They fire the same ammunition, but the maintenance, the logistics are all different. So we're adding to their maintenance problems by what we give them. 
I've got a different view on the no-fly zone from the perspective of it's not just saying they can't fly here. You've got to also take out their radars uh, for the S-400s inside of Russia if you're going to guarantee our ability to fly in that area. But that's a policy question that we're, we've not really addressed head on. Um, but there are things we can do that can really hurt the Russians. And the excuse of, well, we won't have them ourselves, well, we won't fight that T-72 10 years from now because it'll be dead. Well, I'm, uh, great answers and really enjoyed the conversation, sir. I'm so sorry. We're not going to have time for your question, but maybe we can get to it after this is over. I want to take a minute to thank our great guest, uh, Brian. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, Dave, your expertise is greatly valued, and I cherish your uh, time with us, and thank you for being part of this. And ladies and gentlemen, both here in uh, the live audience and at home in virtual land, thank you for joining us. You're going to get a survey over the course of the next several days. Really would enjoy it if you would take a minute to fill that out. With that, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great Thursday afternoon. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you.